Welcome to Revival from the Bible, a daily devotional podcast designed to help more people get into God's Word and get more out of the Word. I'm Ben Blakey. Today's passage is Matthew 16. Who is Jesus? And what does following Jesus look like? I don't know about you, but I think those are pretty important questions to answer if you want to be a student of the Bible and a Christian. Who is Jesus and what does following him look like? Uh, Those are big questions, and we get to a passage today that really is critical in the Gospel of Matthew, and we're going to see answers to those questions today that hopefully will not just add to our knowledge, although hopefully we will learn today, hopefully they really will change our lives. Let's look at Matthew 16. We start with Uh, something familiar before we really get into some things that are new or at least more direct than they have been earlier in the gospel. Now, it starts with the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to Jesus and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. Now, doesn't this sound familiar? Yes, it does. Go back to chapter 12, verse 38, and some of the following verses, they ask for a sign. And Jesus there in chapter 12, and then here in verse 16, refers to them as an evil and adulterous generation that seeks for a sign. And again, he also reiterates that no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah, which Matthew 12 made clear was a reference to the resurrection of Jesus Christ that was to come. And at that time we spoke, hey, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is pretty important, even as a sign uh, showing the identity of Christ. And that's still true in your own evangelism. You should point to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Jesus rebukes them uh, saying, there's basically the idea when he talks about the weather, you know, you, you, you can read the weather, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. That's part of the rebuke. Uh, you know, how, how do you need to come to me and ask for a sign? The implication is there is enough. Um, it has been clear enough, even though maybe it hasn't been as direct as we'll see later in this chapter. It is clear. Going back even earlier in Matthew chapter 12, uh, we saw John the Baptist asking, or actually chapter 11 was where that happened, where John the Baptist asks, and, and Jesus doesn't just come out and say, yes, of course I am the Messiah, uh, but he points to all that he had done. And so he's rebuking the Pharisees and the Sadducees here. And then he warns his disciples um, to verse six, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Um, and it goes on to explain, he's talking about their doctrine. Uh, he's talking about their teaching. So what would that be? Just their their self-serving, hypocritical, uh, external-focused teaching that ultimately denies Christ. You watch out for that. And another thing, it's interesting that we just saw recently a parable where Jesus refers to the kingdom of God, of heaven, the kingdom of God as uh, leaven. Going back to chapter 13, it says the kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid 
in three full measures of flour till all was leaven. And leaven has this way of, of spreading. Well, he's saying false teaching it can be like that too. False teaching has a way of spreading and contaminating and uh, just being a, a problem. And so you need to watch out for this false teaching. And then again, this is familiar because he has to rebuke them for their little faith because they're hear him say leaven and they're like, oh, we we, we brought no bread. And he's like, hey guys, remember how I just fed the 5,000 in chapter 14 and the 4,000 in chapter 15. And here we are in chapter 16. And you're concerned that I can't give you bread. Uh, oh, you of little faith. And that's where, again, that rebuke should mean something to us. And we should seek to have our faith grown as we read the gospel of Matthew. That many times a lack of faith causes us to forget. And we've seen faith opposed to fear. Here we can even see how faith affects understanding. Sometimes we don't understand what we're being taught. And part of it is it's because we have a lack of faith and we're slow to believe in God. Um, so we, we see some familiar things with the Pharisees and Sadducees demanding a sign, with Jesus rebuking the disciples for their lack of faith. But then we get into some new things, at least in Matthew's gospel, where they come to the district of Caesarea Philippi. This would have been north of the Sea of Galilee. Caesarea Philippi, just even by the name, would have been a more a Greek Gentile uh, city. And in that region, he asks the disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets, all right? Who is Jesus? And there were all kinds of theories out there. Uh, maybe some of them saying, oh, he's actually John the Baptist. We, we see Herod at one point believed that Jesus was John the Baptist raised from the dead. Um, people saying, hey, maybe he's Elijah because Elijah, hey, he ascended into heaven. We, we don't have any record of him dying. Maybe he's back in Jesus or even some saying uh, other prophets. But then Jesus says, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. So there, what we see, just a, a very important statement on the identity of Jesus Christ. And I hope reading through the gospel of Matthew, you see how monumental this is because that has been Matthew's main point, trying to show the readers. And again, largely by quoting from the old Testament that Jesus is the Christ, or that's a Greek word. It's the same thing as saying Jesus is the Messiah. And going all the way back to the very first verse of Matthew, it's the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. From the beginning, Matthew is trying to show uh, that Jesus is the Christ to his readers, and Jesus is the Christ. But now you see it gets more direct uh, because Jesus now is directly asking. Someone is saying, you are the Christ, and Jesus is looking at his disciple in straightforward terms and basically saying, yes, you are right. I am the Messiah. I am the son of the living God. And that's where when we read the Bible, and we've been especially thinking through terms like then, always, now, uh, that is just an always statement. That was true when Peter said it. It's still true today. Jesus 
is the Christ, the Son of the living God. He is the one who was prophesied, the prophet, priest, king that we see, the anointed one from the Old Testament, the one who would come and will come again to make things right, the one who came to save us from our sins. That is Jesus Christ. Can you, from your heart, make that confession? Yes, I believe Jesus is the Messiah. He is the son of the living God. And with that, I accept all that comes with that, that he is savior. He is Lord. Uh, He is all that the Bible says that he is a very important statement there. Then we get to a very interesting and very debated statement in verse 18. And it says, and I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, this is a very debated statement um, in the meaning and when he says you are Peter and on this rock. Well, that, that's a play on words because the name Peter uh, sounds like the Greek word for rock. And even that's part of Peter actually wasn't his name. It was kind of a, a given or a nickname uh, to Peter. So what is Jesus saying here? And specifically, what is this rock on which he will build his church? Now, one of the reasons this verse and the following verse are so debated is because of Roman Catholic teaching on this verse, that they establish uh, things like this, uh, like the primacy of Peter. Basically, Peter, because of this, is the first pope. And because of what it says in verse 19, Peter is infallible. And they get all these doctrines of, of the papacy, where there's this human figure that is infallible and whatever he says is is divine and, and has the authority of scripture. Basically, uh, they've drawn a lot of doctrines from this verse that if you are a Protestant like me and you are protesting the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church, uh, you're looking at that and saying, no, I'm not buying that. But here's the thing, and hear me out on this. Some uh, Christians will say, well, no, the rock is actually Jesus or the rock is Peter's confession. But I think the simplest way to understand what it's saying here is that the rock he's referring to is Peter. Now, let me be clear. I do not think that that therefore means Peter was the Pope or really that the Pope is even a thing or any of those things that the Roman Catholic Church teaches are true. No, I don't think any of that is biblical, but I think the simplest way, if you just read this, it really seems like Jesus is talking to Peter and that doesn't really contradict other places in scripture. One good verse to look up would be Ephesians 2.20, which clearly talks about the church being built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And yes, we see in the biblical imagery, Christ is the cornerstone, but he's not saying, hey, Peter, on you and you alone will I build this church. But Peter is clearly a part of the foundation of the church, according to Acts 2.20 is one of the apostles. And really you see it in our sorry, Ephesians 2.20 is one of the apostles, but then you see it in Acts 2, when who's the one giving the sermon on the day of Pentecost? It's 
Peter. So Peter played a clear role. And I think you can believe, hey, I think Jesus is talking to Peter here without believing all the false doctrines that have arisen out of that. And then what in the world is going on in verse 19 when he says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Well, here I think he's speaking, hey, the leaders of the church, the apostles, uh, and then really the, the church, it has authority. Uh, to proclaim the word of God. And it's not an independent authority where Peter or the apostles or the leaders of any church can just make up whatever they want and it's bound on earth and bound in heaven. But according to the word of God, the leaders of the church can make authoritative statements or even as we'll see in Matthew 18, similar language referring to church discipline. That when the, the leaders of the church say, hey, based on what you are doing you are not to be a part of the church or even based on what you're saying or what you're doing, you are not a follower of Jesus Christ. There is authority to that. And don't miss in all of this, the powerful statement that of what Jesus says that he will build his church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And here we are 2000 years later. And guess what? Jesus Christ has built his church and the gates of hell have not prevailed against it and will never prevail against it. And I want that to give you great confidence, not in a passive way where it's like, oh, sweet, I don't have to worry or do anything um, because Jesus is building the church. No, I want it to be a call to a more active confidence. Hey, I need to serve the church. I want to serve the cause of the spread of the gospel of the kingdom of heaven because I know Jesus is working and building his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. There's a great confidence that you should have as a Christian today because of these words. Then we get into uh, a final section here where, again, Jesus starts being more direct with his disciples, and he starts to show them that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter takes him aside and rebukes him saying, no, that's not going to happen to you, Lord. But he turned to Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me for you are setting your mind on the things of, you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And then he goes into this this section where he describes what it looks like to be a follower of Christ. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Um, There he rebukes Peter for worldly thinking. Uh, saying, hey, you're not going to suffer. No, Jesus saying, yes, the Messiah will suffer. And if you want to follow me, get ready to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. So there you see Jesus, he's setting the example and he's saying, that's what following me is going to look like. And if you start buying into some thought that, oh, the Christian life will just be so good and just, it'll feel great all the time. And if you follow Christ, you'll have your best life now. No, get behind me, Satan. You are starting to think in a human way, in an earthly, worldly way, and not according to the things of God. And we'll come back to statements like this throughout the Gospels, where Jesus calls his people to follow his example. And you'll see suffering in the Christian life is not a bug, it's a feature. Um, 
that we see even Jesus says, no, I am going to suffer and you will follow in my footsteps. So that's a theme we'll continue to see in the gospels. And then you get the very interesting statement in verse 28. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the son of man coming in his kingdom. Another debated verse. But I think when we get into chapter 17, which will tell us of the transfiguration, I think that is what Jesus is speaking of. Some of his disciples were about to see his glory, uh, the glory of what Jesus will look like in in his kingdom, but we'll get to that in chapter 17. But for today, let's remember, who is Jesus and what does the Christian life look like? Well, Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, and he suffered and died for us. And following in his footsteps, we must take up our cross, deny ourselves and follow his example. Thanks for digging into God's word with me today on Revival from the Bible. For more resources, check out revivalfromthebible.com. To learn more about Compass Bible Church Treasure Valley, go to compassbible.tv. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you.